Ronananian. I don't care what it is. I don't care who made it, designed it, engineered it, and brought it here. It's going to break, and it's going to need service. And that's the cake. If you believe they put a man on the moon, man on the moon. The car doctor. I called the week before last. Um, he told me to check the spark. Uh, just like you said, it wasn't getting any spark. So I uh, went through. I got it running. It's running now. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines. Hello and welcome. Ron and Andy and the Car Doctor here at 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's 24-7 phone number. You can call 855-560-9900 anytime, day or night. And we can talk about your car and its problem. If we're not here, we're live on the air Saturdays, 2 to 4 p.m. East Coast time. You can uh, leave a message and executive producer Tom Ray will call you back. So if you're a new listener to the Car Doctor family, like the ones down WNIS, Norfolk, Virginia, that uh, are just starting in this week, we thank you. We're happy to be here for you. We want to help you fix your cars. You call us at 855-560-9900. Leave a message. Tom Tom Ray, Chief Cook, Executive Bottle Washer, will uh, get back to you and get you in the next queue for the next live broadcast. That's what we do. I want to talk about the 5% rule. Auto repair is is a game of numbers and inches and seconds and detail for some of it. 70% of the of the broken cars out there, the repairs out there are textbook. And I think that number is probably even a little bit higher and it's getting higher on new old stuff things made in the last five six years because the computers on them and the way they're designed make them more predictable all right there's you you know what's going to go wrong at a certain mileage you tell me it's a p0135 on a toyota camry i'm going to tell you it's a it's a it's a bad air fuel sensor heater circuit you're going to check it you're going to ohm it it's going to ohm open it's bad put one in you're done Sometimes putting it in is a little bit of a problem because the threads come out in the manifold, and that's a whole other project, but the, the diagnosis is simpler. That's probably 70 75% of the cars. And then you get into those, those, those 20% of the fleet that it's more than just scanning it for a code and a half hour of tests. It's some heavy-duty scope work, and it's things that you may or may not have ever seen before, but you eventually solve it after an hour or two. Then you get into the next 5%. And I should preface this. At the very end of this conversation about numbers, there's 5% of the cars that just seemingly can't be fixed. And it's usually related to the checkbook. It's usually related to it's older. Someone doesn't want to spend the money. There's an issue that it's, it's beyond reproach. And maybe it's cheaper to purchase a new vehicle. Maybe because of mileage and actual other condition. And I get that. But somewhere between that that... 90 percentile and 100 percentile, that 90 to 95 percentile, there's a block of five percenters, the five percent rule, I always call it. That block of cars that defies repair, but you know can be repaired. I had one this week. 
2004 Ford E-150 van with 198,000 miles on it. Now, sometimes I think, why did God and Ford ever invent vans? There's got to be a reason, because they're the most unserviceable, unrepairable things on the planet. It's it's like trying to have a conversation with your in-laws at Christmas. Sometimes you just bang your head against the wall, right? The problem with this van, it was a, it's a 5.4 liter, is that it had a fast idle. And the idle was around two grand. Normal idle's around eight, eight fifty, put it in gear, it drops to eight, so on. It's it's controlled. Nobody'd worked on it prior to us, which made it a little easier because I knew who the last idiot was that worked on it. It was me. All right, it was about four or five months ago, and it was an oil change, but I, I, I kind of know the history of the car, which really does help, because having loyalty to a repair shop helps them help you, and it helps you in the long run because the bill's cheaper. The bill isn't a lot of shotgun of parts. The, the parts shotgun doesn't come out, and you know, and you can always tell a vehicle that's had a parts shotgun applied because there's two things that happen. When you open the hood, you're blind, and you need to put on your sunglasses, and number two, there's always a stack of bills that read, well, we tried this, this was $1,000, we tried this, this was $1,500, and so on, and all of a sudden, you know, $3,000 later, the car's not fixed, must be time for a new car, and it falls into that last 5% rule, but it's not. This car was not. The car had a fast idle, 2,000 RPM, no check engine light, no fault codes. So for everybody that's saying, oh, just plug a computer into it, plug a scan tool into it. It'll tell you what's wrong with the car. First of all, scan tools don't tell you anything. All they tell you is information, all right? But they don't necessarily tell you what's wrong with the car. They give you a direction, okay? It would be sort of like, you know, one of the lights is out in the car and you just blindly change the left front headlight and it turns out we're talking about a back brake light. If the check engine light's on, you scan it, you get a code. You know what area of the car you're working on, but not necessarily what part of that area is going to be bad and need to be replaced. So I've got a vehicle, I've got a 100, 200, let's, let's round it off. I've got a 200,000 mile, 15-year-old vehicle with no check engine light and no other symptom other than high idle. 2,000 RPM, hot, cold, no difference, nothing in between. You go through basics. One of the things I always do on, a, on any diagnosis, and this is 43 years of repairing cars, maybe 44 now, I forget, I'm old. I was, um, I was 12 when they landed on the moon, so you guys do the math, all right? It's, uh, you know, it's kind of weird because I'm thinking about all this talk about the moonshot. You know, I was, I was at summer camp uh, that year, and I, I remember watching them walk on the moon. It was like, I think it was like 10 o'clock at night our time because I remember walking back to the cabin at, at 10.30, quarter to 11, and they had all the monsters were out. You know how that goes. Um, uh, you know, yes, Tom? It was 11 at night. Was it 11 at night? Yeah, I remember it being late. I remember it being late, but... Uh, you know, anyway. So I go through the basics. Always check oil level. I just always check oil level just because, even though it's a car we work on regularly, I always check all the fluid levels I can check. I always look for the obvious. One of the things I noticed with this particular van was the radiator was starting to crack, and it was starting to seep coolant. Well, this could be an issue. Early Ford engine control systems, when they suffered from low coolant, believe it or not, would elevate the idle because the computer didn't know what engine temperature was, and it mistook that as a fail-safe for a possible cold engine, and it kept it up high idle like a, like a choke would work on a carburetor. Remember carburetors 35 years ago? But 
Got a rule, can't rule anything out. Check. Coolant level was low in the bottle, but okay in the radiator, okay in the engine, but it needed a radiator. Okay, check off the box. Needs radiator, not the cause of the problem. What's going to make a high idle? You start to do the diagnosis in your head. Well, there's a lot of things that can cause it. Let's take a look at data stream. I take a look at data stream. Now the scan tool is going to give me some information. Idle air control motor looks like it's where it should be as far as a duty cycle reading at 2,000 RPM. That makes sense. I unplug the idle air control motor, and the engine drops to about 1,000 RPM. Gee, the IAC's holding it up. But I look inside the IAC with a flashlight, and it's in the closed position. So I know the IAC is, is, is pulsing. It's open and closing, right? Like a front door to the house, it's letting more air in and out. Okay, it's opening and closing, opening and closing. It's doing its job. The computer's got control of it. But now it's shut. It seems right. What is commanding the IAC to be open like that and run the vehicle at such a high idle? And this is why it's a 5% car. This is why, and this is where everybody will miss this step. Everybody else will throw a computer at this car. I've seen it. I've been there. I've experienced it. You know, it'll be, oh, it's a bad computer. The computer's haunted. The computer's holding the IAC motor up. Wrong. And sometimes it is, but most times you're wrong. You've got to go through the inputs. And I went through the inputs. What makes a high idle? Coolant temp. We already talked about that. Intake air temp. That was correct. It read correct by scan tool. Throttle position. Um, throttle position. Gee, where's throttle position? And I looked at the throttle position sensor voltage. And now watch this. Watch what happens here. Standard throttle position sensor voltage on this vintage era Ford vehicle is nine-tenths to a volt. That's the window. It's a one-tenth of a volt window. All right? Because what Ford does in their operating strategy, they divide this vehicle up into three categories. The throttle is either CT, closed throttle, PT, Part throttle, which is anything off of idle or below wide open, or watt. Watt is wide open throttle. All right? And I had a vehicle now reading 1.19 volts at PT, part throttle, but yet the throttle plate was closed. Wow. Dig this. All right? Now, how did the throttle plate somehow manage to... Why is that? Could I have a bad throttle position sensor? Yeah, you could. A um, little hard to work on because the throttle position sensor is attached to the throttle body, which if I was, I think there was a cartoon character or Elasto Man, if, I could, if, I could, if my knees bent backwards and my hips swiveled the other way, I could probably get under there to work on it. But in this case, at 200,000 miles, I had, I had five volt signal. I had a good ground. You know what? We're going we're gonna to use the part shotgun here. We're going to put a throttle position sensor in it. Gut tells me let's start the war there. Put a throttle position sensor in it, and I saw the voltage go from 1.19 to 1.08. Hey, look at that. Not a lot, but I cut it down some. But I still had a part throttle reading on the scan tool, and I still had a fast idle. I wonder. I looked at the minimum idle speed screw. You know the screw they always tell you not to touch? Well, I looked at the minimum idle speed screw, and the head of it was broken off. Now... I thought I was the only guy who was dating this car. I thought this was my girl. I think she's been cheating on me. She was. When the car doctor returns, I'll tell you the answer. 855-560-9900. Run on any of the car doctor. Don't go away.
whether it's a little red Corvette or a Yugo, you've come to the right place to get that car fixed. Ron and Annie and the Car Doctor, 855-560-9900. Now, back to Ron. Thanks for sticking around. I'll make this short because I know the phones are getting backed up. So, this 04 E150 that we were working on this week, I was working on this week with the high idle. Change the throttle position sensor, just to recap, it saw a voltage drop a tenth, about a tenth, from 1.19 to 1.08. Still had a high idle. Proved a bad throttle position sensor, but it's a 5% car, I said to myself. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like one of those cars that you say to yourself, where would you go if it wasn't that and you have to go there first? Well, now you got to go there because you're there. So I started thinking about the part throttle error message because the scan tool said, not that it was an error message, the scan tool was correctly telling me part throttle. So I said, the computer thinks it's at part throttle when it's not. The throttle plate is closed. But the throttle stop screw looks like it's been tampered with. The head of the screw is broken off. Wasn't me. All right? I've been working on the vehicle probably the better part of 15 years, if not all of its life, but at least 15 of them. So it was time to Columbo the customer. You know, you sit the customer down and you interrogate him a little bit. And it turns out, oh, about... Four years ago, on a trip to Ohio from New Jersey, the transmission failed. Well, I don't like the sound of this. And they broke down somewhere in East Jabib, Pennsylvania. Nothing against East Jabib. It's just, it's just east of West Jabib. And, you know, Jabib. And they had a problem after the trans and they had to turn around when they were part way home and they had to take it back and somebody monkeyed with something and they ended up fixing it somehow but they don't really know what they did uh-huh see this is what happens when you break up you have a fight and you start dating other people and then you come back to the king so that told me something i took the throttle body off and I shined a flashlight behind it. And if you ever look at the front door to your house, you know, when you close your front door, sealed is sealed, closed is closed. Well, a throttle plate can't work like that. There has to be a tiny little bit of airflow for minimum idle speed, minimum idle airflow, as we call it. All right? And in the case of this Ford van, yeah, there was, it wasn't touching, but it wasn't closed. It, you know, just a smidge. So now we're going to play the game of what if. All right? What if I close the throttle plate a little bit, but not let the plate touch the housing? Take out your pair of vice grips, because now the head of the screw's broken off. You've got nothing else to work with. And I start cranking it down, crank it down, crank it down, crank it down. The plate just touches the housing. I plug the TPS in. I start up the scan tool. And I'm reading 0.89. Ah, ooh, wait, we're getting somewhere, you know? It's kind of like that, 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 that feeling you get after eating a satisfying dinner. Ooh, ah, hey, where are we going here? So I disconnected it, turned it up like a half a turn. And I took a flashlight. I could still see light between the plate and the housing. It didn't stick. It wasn't notchy. Plugged it in, and it read 1.0 CT, closed throttle. So the difference between 1 volt and 1.08 of a volt, eight tenths, not even eight tenths. That's eight hundredths. Yeah, just a just a smidge, <laughs> about that much on the Richter scale. Um, made the difference between closed throttle and part throttle. It's a game of inches. It's a game of less than inches now, because that's what the computer gives us. And just for the record, I found out if you go to one because I had a, I had to crank it. I had to know where that dividing line was, right? 
at 1.03 volts. At 1.04, it goes to part throttle. At 1.03, it's still considered closed throttle. So one volt was a safe margin. It gave me enough. It gave me three hundredths of a um, uh, of a volt. You know, sweet spot. And that fixed the van. That that ended up fixing the van. It was the most. It was just the neatest thing. You know, it was a five percent car. And I looked at Danny, and, and Danny was, you know, looking over my shoulder. He's watching me all afternoon on Friday. He's like, you know, he goes, every other shopper, he says, every other shopper, well, he, he says, they would all have been throwing parts. I said, I know. I said, it just, I just didn't buy that it was parts because everything seemed to be reacting. And the point of the story is you get a 5% car. It's the input. You've got to look at the information. You've got to understand how the system works. You've got to understand the rational logic of what the engineers were trying to do to make the car work. It turns out that the reason the idle speed stayed high was because if it sees anything over one volt, or if it goes from closed throttle to part throttle, the computer now acts using the idle air control motor to bump up the idle speed as an electronic dash pot. Now this is where I'm going to lose everybody. A million years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the land and cars had carburetors on them, we put a dash pot. A dash pot was something that would soften the closing of the throttle plate so the vehicle, the throttle plate didn't just slam down and stall. It was a mechanical stop that just, it was like a cushion that allows the throttle to close easy. The way they do it on the newer vehicles is they do it electronically. The computer looks at throttle position and it says the throttle's starting to close and as it approaches closed throttle, it starts to hold the idle speed up. And now it all makes sense, right? The, it, the computer thinks the throttle's coming down. It doesn't turn on a check engine light. It doesn't know you want it to idle. How does it, know, how does it not know you're not sitting in the vehicle holding your foot on the gas trying to maintain idle speed for some reason? It doesn't. All I know is the difference between 1 volt and 1.08 tenths of a volt made all the difference in the world in making this vehicle run right, and that's just what it does right now. 5% rule, bottom line, you call me at 855-560-9900. I'll fix your 5% problem, too. I'm Ron Anany, The Car Doctor. We'll be back right after this. Car Doctor. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Hello and welcome. Welcome back. We're on the Car Doctor here. So let's, uh, Tom, you got me with that one. Let's, uh, let's go over and talk to Mike in Maine and uh, some commentary about a Tesla. Mike, welcome back, sir. How, how are you today? Hey, Ron, it's not Mike, it's Micah. Oh, it's Micah. I can't read. My glasses are all steamed up. Tom's got things excited here in the studio. So uh, it's hot and it's sweaty. Hot it's it's hot too. and sweaty in the Northeast. So um, what's going on today, Micah? Well, I had uh, a comment uh, from one of the callers last week, a question, and then I wanted to tell you about riding in a Tesla. Okay. Um, you had a caller, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, she was looking to replace her Jeep Liberty, looking for something like that, uh, that rode a little high, had good gas mileage, and had some of the modern conveniences of a backup camera, and, right. uh, lane-changing indicators and things like that. And one of the things that you didn't mention, I don't know how you feel about it, but I thought might 
fit her really well would be a uh, 2015 or later Subaru um, Forester. It rides high, it's all-wheel drive, it gets good mileage, and it has all those features. And they fixed the head gasket issue, or so they say, back in 2012. Well, the reason I didn't go there, and I remember the caller, she lived up in uh, Minnesota or up in the upper northwest, yep. was because when we started talking about Ford Escapes or Toyota Highlanders and things of that caliber, which are to me are the same thing as the Subies, um, it was out of her price range. So I'm not sure what she was looking for. She was looking for something 15 years old that had the reliability of a five-year-old car almost. I'm not quite sure what it is she really wanted, but I, I, as she said when she started the conversation, she's looking for something that she knows she can't have. And uh, I, 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 I kind of agree with that. So, But uh, point taken, Michael. Nothing against Subarus. I think that also would have been a good vehicle for her, but I just think it was out of her price range. So, um, the, second the comment. The quick question I had for you, yeah, well, quick question I had was about um, uh, gas additives. I use Berryman's like you told me to, right. but I'm wondering how often I should be doing it. Should I be doing it with every – I do my oil changes at 6,000 miles or six months because I go low mileage. So should I be doing it every six months with my oil changes? Yeah, I think so. I, I would at least do it every oil change. Uh, you know, it, it, depending that, upon how you drive, depending upon the age of the vehicle, depending upon how the vehicle's running, you know, it's it's – listen – Using a fuel system cleaner is kind of like getting a blood test at the doctor. It's an ever-changing process. You know, your blood work today may report and show something different than it shows two months from now. So, you know, using a fuel system cleaner has to evolve as the car evolves. At least every oil change, if you're finding that as the vehicle ages and somebody were to watch fuel trims and see changes in fuel trims or how the vehicle's running, uh, you know, in terms of idle quality, you know, if you're changing the oil every six months, you might start doing a fuel system additive like Berryman every three months and just trying to increase the diet. The idea is, and the concern becomes, as gasoline changes, you don't know how carbon deposits are going to increase or decrease based on their changes alone, so you're trying to predict and, and, and stay consistent. At least using a tank additive on a, on a regular basis helps, helps maintain it. But you're still going to also have to do on a regular basis every 30,000 miles or every 15 if you want to be a little bit more, uh, you know, um, uh, vigorous. You're still going to end up doing a full carbon system cleaning, hooking up a machine and, you know, cleaning the injectors, cleaning uh, carbon on the backs of the valves and so forth if you can. Now, keep in mind, a lot of the engines today are GDI, gasoline direct injection. So you can't even clean the intake valves because the fuel misses them completely. The fuel is sprayed directly into the cylinder, and you're going to be using a fuel system cleaner. It's going to have it's going to have not as good of an effect as it would be on an older vehicle. Now, they do make additives that are geared towards uh, GDI vehicles, and believe it or not, some of those additives are tied directly to the oil in the crankcase in terms of, you know, putting in an oil additive to help strengthen the oil so it doesn't sneak up past the rings and lay on top of the piston and then eventually turn into carbon. So bottom line, the answer is using as often as you can afford it. Uh, I, you know, I, I think there's a line where it's just a waste. Every oil change, yes. Every three months, not the worst idea in the world. That makes sense? Then I'll do it every, absolutely. Then I'll do it every three months because, you know, a can of Berryman's just is not that expensive. 
And uh, and why not? You know, I'm spending. I'm trying to use top tier gasoline, right. which is only about ten cents more a gallon. But I might as well do it. Right. It's not a lot, whole lot of money either. And if it's going to make the car last longer, make it run better. What the heck? What the heck, right? And but, and, and for everybody like, else's benefit, you can find more information about Berryman at BerrymanProducts.com. You had a you had a third comment, Micah. Yes, I had my first ride in a Tesla yesterday. Okay, what do you and think? The only thing. It was uh, it was very interesting. It's not very much like a car, other than it has four wheels, a steering wheel, and two stocks on the steering wheel. Other than that, it's more of a computer on wheels. But what was amazing about it was uh, the gentleman that was driving it for me uh, showed the, showed me the, the torque and the pickup, and it goes from zero to fifty in fifty seconds. I was dizzy. I was pulling G's. Right. It was absolutely incredible. I never experienced anything like that before. And the other thing is that you drive it differently. And I noticed it as he was braking. You don't brake. You take your foot off the gas, and it automatically brakes with the regenerative, uh, 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 re- regenerative power so that it goes back into the battery as you're slowing down. Right. It was a really unbelievable experience, a very nice experience. But I can't figure out how. I don't believe it's a repairable car. I think you, you buy would, it, you use it up, and when it's time to go, you buy another car. Would you own one, Micah? Not up here in northern Maine. I don't have a garage, and I don't have a place to charge it. Right. And I think I think Tesla's, you know, I don't want to say he's ahead of his time, because we're all in the time we're supposed to be in, but I, I think Tesla's showing us a concept. I don't think it's practical in today's society, because uh, I just think it's it's unobtainable. All right, starting Monday, we're going to do away with the oil economy. We're an oil-based economy, all right? And you know we're going to tell we're going to tell the big three, and we're going to tell the gasoline refiners and the oil refiners, hey, you know what? We don't need oil anymore. We don't need gasoline anymore. Everything's going electric. How would you do it? It's 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 unobtainable. I I completely agree. Now he gets three hundred miles on a charge with that, which is, is is not bad. And and if I had a garage and the kind of driving I do, because I'm not going distances anymore, it would be great. It would be economical for me. But it's it, it's a very fancy, fancy golf cart. It's right. not a vehicle. Right. And did, did did your friend happen to tell you what he paid for it? Oh yeah, it's, it's forty forty five thousand dollars. Right. And that means that was a basic version, because I know I know Absolutely. I know someone. She bought a Tesla, and she ended up paying sixty two thousand dollars for it. And I said, why? I hear that they're selling for like thirty thirty five. She goes, right. But I wanted I wanted the nice seats. So I don't get a backache. I wanted the slightly bigger tires. I wanted the more plush interior. You know, every little creature comfort, if you will, adds $5,000 to the car. She ended up paying $62,000 for, you know, a pregnant roller skate with a plastic body. I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. I, there's other things I'd spend sixty grand on, but a Tesla's not one of them. No, sir. No, thank you. And the other thing I found about it, too, is that it, it's one of those cars, kind of like my Subaru, but... There's no dashboard, so you have to be looking at this big pad in front of you, iPad kind of thing, and you got to figure out where you're going to touch it. Right. So you're going to get into crashes just trying to, you know, uh, turn your lights on or change the radio. Well, station. yeah, and I, th- I, I think there's that there's that familiarity of of you know control. You know, it's like I tell everybody, listen, you're going out to buy a new car, you got to drive a new car twice. You got to drive it during the day. You got to drive it at night in the dark because cars change personality. Now you're going to drive this this rocket ship. All right, that you know, we're not going for a re-entry here. We're not, we're not circling Neptune and Saturn and looking at the stars, and uh, we're not gonna, you know, take the long trip around just to, for the sake of driving it. It's, it's a rocket ship, and you know, what if you're out in Timbuktu 
There's you, you've got Timbuktu up there in Maine, don't you, Micah? You know we're going to go to Timbuktu oh, today. It's, yeah, right. And yep. you're you're out in the middle of Timbuktu, and all of a sudden we have a computer glitch. You're 500 miles from the middle of nowhere. Heck, you're 500 miles left of nowhere. Now who's going to fix it? But there is that corner oh, garage you're, you're, in town, and <laughs> exactly. You were talking about the van uh, in, in your last segment that broke down in East Jabib, Pennsylvania. I know right. exactly where that is. Yeah. If you break down with a Tesla in East Jabib. I don't know what you're going to do. Well, you're staying overnight in Jabib. You go to the Jabib. You go to the Jabib Holiday Inn, and you get the continental breakfast, three muffins, and a cup of coffee the next day. And then hopefully they they end up figuring out how to fix it, and they send you home. So, Mike, well, the problem is you might be staying there for a week. Well, anyway, you thank might you be. so much. You're very welcome, Mike. As always, I appreciate your comments and phone calls. Eight five 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 six zero nine nine zero zero. Run any of the car doctor. We're back right after this. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars and let me see what spring is like on a Jupiter and Mars. Hey, 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 Ron Nini and the Car Doctor. Man, he was the king of cool. Frank and I have a lot of uh, have a lot in common. Did you know that? Yeah. We both have hats. Um whew. let's go over and talk to Sydney in the Bronx. Sydney, welcome to the Car Doctor. Thanks for hanging out there so long. How can I help you in your ninety one Chevy Astro? Hey Ron, how you doing? What's right. going on? What's going on, man? Hey Ron, uh, Ron, listen, you got to help me out here. I'm, I'm right. in desperate need. Go, baby. Uh, okay, I'm getting a cool 32. Okay. And it's, it seems like it's laying over to uh, the on the map sensor as well. And on top of that, I, after after a while, you drive the vehicle down the block or down the road, it it, it loses speed after a while. The light comes on, that annoying light comes on, and it won't go away. I think I, I, I took the EGL valve off. I cleaned it. I tested it with a, a, a tester, and here we go. Okay. I, I replaced it. I replaced it a couple of times, and we're right back where we started from. Well, okay. Well, y- you you make reference to the map sensor. This is an EGR fault thirty two. Right. Why are we? Saying, okay. Ahead. See what happens is that when you read it, when it was, if I were using in front of me and I show you the code from the. Uh, from the tech scan tool, you'll say it's, it's like it's like it's like the voltage is on the EGR on the, on the map sensor is low. That's what it says. Okay. Um, can you make reference to that? Well, let's go back a second. So a 32, by definition, on a 91 Astro, all right, has to deal with the and, and we're talking about on the powertrain control module, correct? Right out of the PCM is is strictly yeah. EGR. One of the yeah. things that let, let's do the tests like this. This is how I remember it. Okay, there's an EGR vacuum solenoid, right, that feeds the yes, valve. Sir. Yes, sir. You, you have good vacuum at that solenoid. As far as I know, I do. I, I put I put a, a vacuum test a vacuum test on it, and, and I, I haven't been get, I, technically I didn't really get any vacuum out of it. Out of but, uh, out of where? I, I put it on the on the, on the I put it on at the tip of the EGR. No, 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 no. Here's what I, here's what I want you to do. Okay. okay. When you walk when you walk into your house, do you come in the front door to get to yes. the kitchen? Good. Yeah. So we got to go through the front door. We got to we got to do this in a logical sequence. All right. Okay. So the EGR solenoid feeds vacuum to the valve. Right. All right? There's going to be two vacuum hoses, an in and an out. We've got to make sure that the in the vacuum supply has good vacuum. Okay. All right. Do you have a vacuum gauge? Yes, I do. All right. We've got to see, you know, disconnected from the EGR solenoid, we've got to see manifold vacuum there. Okay. All right? You know, it's between 16 and 18 inches of vacuum. That's typically what we're going to say. We've got okay. vacuum there. Put it back on. That's done. All right? 
Now take the now take the vacuum hose off at the EGR valve and put your vacuum gauge on it. All right. Okay. There's a gray wire at the solenoid. Okay. All right. You'll have hot on one side, key on, engine off. You'll have hot on one side. You'll have battery voltage on the one wire. The other wires are gray. That's ground. Okay. Ground that gray wire. All right. With okay. it with it connected to the solenoid, ground that gray wire. All right. Okay. You ground that gray wire, and you should get vacuum to the EGR. Actually, you have to do this with the engine running because you'll have to see. You'll have to see. I would, I'm going to change this. There's two caveats I want to state here. Um, you got to do this with the engine running because you want to make sure there's vacuum at the at the feed side of the solenoid. All right. Okay. And I want you to get a wiring diagram and, ve and verify in 91 that it was a gray wire. Basically, there's two wires at the solenoid, a hot and a ground. All okay. right. I want to make sure the hot is hot and the ground is ground. And if you ground the ground wire, that you get a vacuum to the EGR. Okay, so you say it's lacking vacuum? Well, uh, just, this, again, we're walking through the house to get to the kitchen. We're just going okay. through this step by step. All right? Okay. So, you know, it's it's hot. Do we have a hot? Do we have, gr do we have a ground? And if we ground that ground, does it allow vacuum to pass through the solenoid? Because keep in mind, if it's missing any of this, it's going to set a 32. Okay. So, gotcha. you know, it's, it's, it's where we got to be first. Sit where you are. Let me pull over and take this pause. When I come back, we'll finish this up. I'm running in the car, Doctor. Don't go anywhere. Hey, running in the car, Doctor. Let's get right back to Sydney in the Bronx. Sydney, you're still there? Yeah, I'm here. So, so, you know, what we're trying to do is, one step at a time, we're trying to just take this EGR system and verify its operation. All right. Okay. So you know, if if it's got a two wire solenoid, which I believe it did in ninety one, um, yeah, power did. power ground. Uh, one's power, yeah. one's ground. If you ground the ground, and if you want to, if you've got a good access to the wiring harness, if you want to prevent any other issues, cut the gray wire. All okay. right. Cut the gray wire. You can always solder it back together. Cut the gray wire and ground the end going to the solenoid valve itself, to the solenoid okay. itself. All right. Gotcha. Just just apply direct ground to it. At, at that point, that valve should open. It should pass vacuum through from the feed over to the apply, and you should see vacuum on your gauge with the engine running. Makes sense, right? Yes, it does. So, so now you know that portion's good, all right? Now, okay. plug, now plug the vacuum hose in, bring the engine up to about 1,200 RPM, ground the gray wire. Does the EGR valve open? If the EGR, okay. if the EGR valve doesn't open, you've either got a bad new valve or... Um, or, well, and I should say it like this, ground the EGR valve, ground the solenoid, the EGR valve should open and make the engine run rough. If the engine doesn't run rough, either the EGR valve isn't opening, and we've, got, we've possibly got a bad new valve, or we've got, some, we've got a different issue going on, or the valve is opening, you should be able to feel underneath it. If I remember right, those valves were open underneath it, you could you know, feel it with your finger as the valve opened, or, or and this is what I think you're going to find, if all the components test good, you're going to find that there's a carbon restriction in the EGR passageway in the cylinder head in the intake manifold. And then if that's the case, what you're going to have to do is go find an old speedometer cable, take the guts out of a speedometer cable, beat up the end so it's splayed so it looks like a four-foot stool, and put it on the end of a drill and use it as a snake to kind of clean the carbon out. And, um, you know, that should help you. That should do it for you. Try that. Call me back. I'm running in the car, doctor. The mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.